Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I'm pleased to welcome Lauren Brooke Eisen, author of Inside Private Prisons, An American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration uh, from Columbia University Press. Lauren Brooke, welcome. Thank you for having me and talking to me about this work. Uh, it's my pleasure. So before we dive in and talk about the book itself, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, your own background, and perhaps what brought you to this particular project. Absolutely. So I am a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law in New York City. And at the Brennan Center, I have focused on the financial incentives uh, in our criminal justice system. And so a lot of our work has um, centered on reducing the number of people who are incarcerated in the United States. And most of your listeners are probably aware that about 2.2 million people are behind bars in county jails, state prisons, federal prisons. So a lot of our work focuses on um, research and uh, policy. Um, We write a lot of reports looking at how we can safely reduce the number of people who are incarcerated in this country. And specifically, a lot of my focus has been on changing those financial incentives um, to to encourage a reduction in the number of incarcerated people in the U.S. Um, So this particular book focuses on uh, the private prison aspect of that. And before we sort of uh, dive into the the deeper questions, I wonder if uh, we might just sort of get a little bit of of sort of basic descriptive data on the table to begin with. So, uh, So how many private prisons are there in the United States? What's the share of the total? Uh, What should we know about the scale and scope of private prisons themselves in the U.S.? So there are about 29 states that have a private prison at the state level. So that's more than half the states. The federal government uses private prisons. um, And what a lot of your listeners may not be aware of is that private prisons have a pretty significant market share of immigration detention centers. And when we talk about the numbers It's about 8% uh, nationwide, if we include state and federal 
uh, prisons. It's about not 9% of, um, of state prisons are privatized. It's about 18% at the federal level. And, you know, that number is so big, partly because there are only 180,000 incarcerated people in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So it's not just, um, you know, when we talk about private prisons, it's really interesting because a lot of people will say, well, it's not really that many people. You're talking about 2.2 million incarcerated people in the United States. You know, why focus on private prisons? Um, and the idea behind this book was, you know, this is a story. This is um, a, a narrative about how the private prison industry, how capitalism became so entrenched in American corrections and immigration detention. And, you know, that's what was exciting to me about writing the story. So, so, so pick up from there. So how did it happen? How did, how did we wind up being this unusual uh, what innovator in in privatizing what a lot of people have traditionally thought of as this quintessentially public service? Well, that's a great question, and the book looks at the privatization of the justice system beyond corrections. It starts looking at how you know we as a nation have a history of privatizing many things in the justice system. You know, we privatize judicial services, and a lot of people don't think about it this way, but. Um, if, if you're a plaintiff or, or a defendant in a civil case and the parties agree on arbitration because the backlog of civil cases is so significant, that's a, that's privatization of justice. Um, we have privatized firefighting. We have privatized police. We have privatized prosecutors and special prosecutors in some states and at the federal level. But this unique idea of privatizing corrections is different. And that's really at the center of this book. How have we as a nation delegated such a core government, such a core government duty? What are the constitutional implications? What are the moral implications? What are the logistical implications? And those are the questions that this book really grapples with. Um, so go back to that, that sort of the, the origin story for us. Uh, uh, how did this happen? How did this come about? Why did we start privatizing prisons in particular? We started privatizing prisons in terms of these modern private prison corporations that most people are aware of in the mid-1980s. And what happened at that time is that about three quarters of states were under some sort of federal court order to reduce prison populations. Prisons were overcrowded. They were unhygienic. They were bursting at the seams. And directors of corrections were, were really over a barrel. They didn't have the capacity. They didn't have the facilities to safely house the number of incarcerated people that they needed to house. This was the mid-80s. Ronald Reagan was president. This was the heyday of tough-on-crime in America. Americans had, um, for the last decade, they had watched the television and seen these riots in Attica, riots on the West Coast. People were afraid of crime. Crime was slowly ticking up. Right? You know, 1991 was the height of um, violent crime in this country. But in the mid-80s and in the early 90s, we didn't know that. You know, this is us Monday morning quarterbacking. So what happened was a group of entrepreneurs got together and they said, you know what? The government's not doing a very good job at managing jails and prisons. 
there ought to be there ought to be another way. And a couple of corporations formed at that time. And one of them was the Corrections Corporation of America. It's recently rebranded and um, is now known as CoreCivic. And they got together, um, CoreCivic CCA at the time, made an unprecedented offer in the state of Tennessee. Now, Tennessee was one of these states where prisons had really reached a breaking point. And Tennessee's prisons were under a federal court order to reduce its prison population because of overcrowded conditions, unsafe prison conditions. The last few years had seen dozens of killings and riots, as well as escapes at state prisons. And so Corrections Corporation of America offered to take over Tennessee's entire prison system for $250 million, along with a 99-year lease. And a Chicago Tribune journalist was down in uh, Nashville at the time, and he wrote an article, and I, I think there's a quote from the article that's still very prescient today. And the reporter wrote, there was considerable disagreement as to whether Corrections Corporation of America's lobbyists roaming the Capitol halls last week were cavalry coming to the rescue or profiteers coming to exploit. And that is the central thesis of this book's inquiry. And ultimately, Tennessee rejected CCA's offer. Uh, they did not agree to a contract with CCA to take over the state's entire prison system. But that offer had made front page headlines. I think it was in the afternoon edition of the New York Times print edition. And with that headline, with that publicity, directors of, of corrections, governors took notice and said, you know, what is this new company? Who are these new entrepreneurs who are willing to manage jails and prisons in this country? And, you know, that was really the beginning of the modern private prison industry. And I mean, they figured out a way to make money doing this, right? They did. And, you know, the, the mid 80s and the early 90s was the time when in the United States, we drastically ramped up the number of people who were incarcerated you know, we didn't have, we didn't use phrases such as mass incarceration yet. You know, we, we weren't there yet. But these entrepreneurs uh, were looking at prison projections and they saw that this was a lucrative market. And at the same time, they also saw that the government was not able to safely manage these jails and prisons. And, you know, by 1994, uh, CCA, um, in, in their annual report to shareholders, noted that you know there was a significant market um, to privatization of prisons, and that there were untapped market forces they ha that they had only started to um, realize. And and I, I write about that in the book because you know, this is the dilemma of the private prison industry. You know, these are these are corporations, um, CoreCivic and, and Geo Group, the two largest private prison companies in the country, are now publicly traded. Um, and they owe a duty to shareholders to, to make a profit. And, you know, this this is really the focus of the book is this this air this this push and pull, this dilemma, this questioning over whether it is proper, moral, constitutional, legal 
to make money off of incarceration and, and what it means to us as a country. And why can't the government safely manage jails and prisons? I mean, it's, it's interesting because one of the one of the observations you make is that, you know, we, we're, we're, we're confronting this sort of, of, of crisis of, of uh, new criminal justice policies, creating this new need for places to incarcerate people. But precisely because private prisons were able to step in and be fairly nimble in building new prisons, it obviated the need for public officials to think about what other solutions might look like. Yes. Absolutely. And that's one of the findings of this book. You know, I I asked, why was there no great inspiring debate in the mid 80s and the early 90s when directors of corrections were facing skyrocketing numbers of incarcerated people that they had to house, clothe, feed? Why were these conversations about the proper role of incarceration so rare? You know, perhaps it was because so many prison facilities were under emergency court orders to reduce the number of people they housed. Policymakers didn't feel they had time to explore alternatives. And in 2018, there's this consensus, this left-right coalition that we have far too many people in our jails and our prisons, that incarceration does not make communities safer. In fact, incarceration... um, you know, may have huge criminogenic effects, detriments to public safety, so many collateral consequences related to incarceration, um, impacts on families, you know, devastating impacts on the economy. And, you know, it, it's much easier in 2018 with four decades of research under our belts about, you know, what may drive people to violate our criminal code, what solutions may be better to address those drivers, such as alternatives to incarceration, diversion programs, mental health treatment, drug treatment. But at the time in the 80s and the 90s, policymakers weren't thinking that way. And there hadn't been this huge investment in in research to um, really, really get at how to help people who violate the criminal code, you know, incarceration was sort of the one size fits all response. And the book makes the argument that, of course, the private prison industry did not create mass incarceration. We have mass incarceration because America has incredibly punitive criminal justice policies, three strikes laws, mandatory minimums, very long sentences for crimes that in other countries would merit much shorter sentences. So we send far too many people to jails and prisons and for far too long. But the private prison industry, in a certain sense, let policymakers off the hook because they didn't have to have these difficult conversations about the proper role of punishment and incarceration exactly because these the industry was so nimble. They could do an end run around complicated government procurement laws and rules. They could build these prisons quickly. They were brand new and they could raise the capital to do so. And that's the story of how the private prison industry emerged in the 80s and the early 90s. And I think, you know, even even then and in, in continuing on, I think it's fair to say that the the principal critique against private prisons is that it is introducing a profit motive in such a way that it runs the risk of distorting 
uh, uh, the criminal justice process and, and runs the risk, obviously, of, of creating great great injustice. Uh, you you observe that that despite the fact that crime rates in the U.S. actually peak in the early 1990s, uh, sort of uh, uh, radical increases in incarceration continue afterwards and sort of cease to be connected with crime rates. Do you think that that the the sort of the political pressure coming from for-profit prisons who depend on a, a steady stream of people convicted of crime. Do you think that that distorted the process and contributed to continuing mass incarceration? That question, um, you know, that comes up a lot. And it's a really interesting question and certainly explored in the book. My goal in writing this book was to tell the the true story of how the private prison industry emerged in the U.S. And to look at the possible benefits, you know, look at um, what the failings were on the side of the government, what the failings might have been on the side of the, you know, the private industry. And I did look for those sort of, um, you know, those touchstones to mass incarceration and and what the private industry's role might have been in our build up towards mass incarceration you know, one one way that they're sort of implicated in mass incarceration is by being able to provide these facilities build these facilities quickly and in a way that the government just couldn't compete with um you know in that sense though they're they're merely acting as a government partner what is a little more frightening to advocates and and um, you know those who are trying to reduce the number of people who are incarcerated is that in the past the um, private prison officials have been a part of, um, for example, they were at American Legislative Exchange Council meetings, and there were some private prison industry officials who were who had a seat at these criminal justice task forces and in, in these ALEC meetings. And that's important because those task forces played a role in drawing up model punitive legislation, such as um, three strikes legislation. And, you know, that's that's a pretty um, apparent connection to the private prison industry and state policymakers ramping up punitive responses that would incarcerate more people for violating the criminal codes. But in a lot of the research, um, you know, I really found that the private prison industry wasn't necessarily lobbying for more punitive laws. And if you go on their websites, you know, they're very clear. We don't lobby policymakers. We educate policymakers. Um, <laughs> Although one would expect them to say yes, that. Yes, and they're certainly talking to, to legislators and policymakers. But the story is complicated, because the governments, you know, state government, even the federal government, have have really had a hard time properly managing jails and prisons in this country, and yeah. you know that is um, apparent by the high recidivism rates. About two thirds of people who leave prison will return within three years, and you know, we. Our state corrections are not 
properly rehabilitating individuals. They are not releasing individuals who are ready to rejoin their communities. You know, part of it, obviously, is, um, you know, racial disparities in arrests and where you police and where you arrest. So it's very complicated. Uh, But, you know, the book really argues and finds that as long as the private prison industry has a foothold in American corrections, why not ask them to do more? Why not ask them to be a, to reduce recidivism rates? And we can talk about, you know, we'll probably talk about this later, but, but that's really through these pay for performance contracts. Yeah. I mean, so let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about that because again, that seems to be one of those places where every financial incentive of a for-profit prison is to do a terrible job at reducing recidivism, right? They want folks to, to, they want a revolving door. So, so are there, is there any evidence that they are intentionally uh, sending uh, prisoners out sort of, of, of unprepared for reentry so that they come back? And are there any sort of model policies for how to effectively control that piece of what the private prisons are doing? I don't think that there is, you know, the book really did not find evidence that the private prison industry is complicit in trying to ensure that people return to them. And there is a lot of rhetoric around that. And, you know, they really see themselves and they are as, as government partners and corrections is tough business, you know, government corrections, private corrections, you are responsible for the safety, security, health of so many individuals, um, some of them who have never really had great health care um, before they are even incarcerated. And then on top of that, there is this pressure to rehabilitate, provide programming. And it's something that the state, you know, that government correction struggles with. And, you know, the book really finds that the the private sector, at least you know, since the mid '80s, hasn't done a job that's very different than what the government is doing. You know, these are sometimes um, contracts that mimic you know what the government is doing, down to the boots that the corrections officers wear. And you know, tracking recidivism is tough, um, and it's not. It's not. You know, when I write about the need to track recidivism in this book, but. recidivism is complicated and is not um, people recidivate for many reasons. Um, You know, they don't have the the proper, um, you know, they don't have enough income when they re-enter society. They don't have community support. Um, There may be mental health or drug needs um, that, you know, support that they're not receiving. But, the government, when it comes to corrections, and the private sector, when it comes to corrections, really ought to do more in terms of tracking recidivism rates. And one of the recommendations of the book is, as long as we are signing contracts with the private industry, we should require the private industry to aim to reduce recidivism rates Um more than the government can. You know, when we talked about how the government's recidivism rates are, are are pretty high and, you know, we've had, we've relied on the private prison industry for four decades and it's time that we write into these contracts um, that they need to reduce recidivism rates to meet certain benchmarks. 
Uh, you're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, and we're speaking with Lauren Brooke Eisen, author of Inside Private Prisons. Uh, so, Lauren Brooke, I don't want to I don't want to leave this conversation without talking a little bit about immigration detention centers, since that, as you mentioned uh, at the top, is, is is something that that folks may not have on their radar. Can you talk a little bit about the 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 role that the private uh, prison sector plays in immigration detention? Absolutely. When we talk about the 2.2 million people behind bars, that does not include anyone who's in immigration detention. Now, immigration detention centers hold civil detainees. So these are people who have not been convicted of a crime. They are merely in this country um, held in immigration detention, either waiting an asylum hearing or waiting some other um, you know, court process to decide whether these individuals can remain in this country or whether they will be deported. Now, a lot of your listeners may not realize that private prisons house about 65% of ICE detainees. They have a pretty significant foothold in the immigration detention space. And as part of my research in this book, I did visit some private immigration detention centers um, and spent time in these facilities. And you know, these are places where there there is not a lot of programming. And to the industry's defense, ICE is not providing a lot of programming in their own immigration detention centers either, because these are civil detainees. They are not in these facilities to be rehabilitated. Um, they have not been convicted of violating any criminal laws. Um, but there are about, um, you know, right now, there are about over 30,000 immigration detention beds in this country. Uh, the Trump administration budget asks for additional funds. It um, requested more than $1.2 billion in the 2018 federal budget to expand detention capacity to more than 48,000 beds a day. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is a space where the, um, the private industry has certainly been able to gain a pretty significant foothold. And when I was on the ground in some of these facilities, I actually asked some ICE officials, um, you know, sort of a, about this partnership with the private industry. And they explained to me that ICE doesn't really have the detention capacity um, and that they have really relied on the private prison industry to build these detention centers and manage these facilities. Um, we've been speaking with Lauren Book Eisen, author of Inside Private Prisons, An American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Uh, so, Lauren Book, tell, tell uh, us a little bit about uh, what you and or the Brennan Center are, are working on now or what are the issues you think are sort of most pressing and we should be paying most attention to? Absolutely. We, you know, we've talked a lot about how the sort of growth and emergence of the private prison industry. And what I'm really interested in is solutions. And, you know, the book, the book notes that states should really ensure that contracts with private prisons contain incentives that focus on reducing recidivism and improving outcomes for so many of the people who are incarcerated. And as part of my research, I looked to see if any of these incentives existed in contracts in the United States. And my research really led me to some models in Australia and New Zealand, where there, there are these really interesting sort of innovative public-private partnerships, these consortiums that, um, that, that manage 
private prisons in those countries. And there's one in New Zealand and one in Australia. And I am hoping to visit Australia and New Zealand in July, specifically trying to talk to people who played a role in putting together those public-private partnerships because they can serve as a model um, for, for how we could contract with the private prison industry in the United States. And, you know, these contracts would, um, they have performance, you know, they have performance um, milestones, um, benchmarks, where the private sector is aiming to reduce recidivism rates for certain cohorts of individuals in these facilities, um, you know, more than their governments can. And the private sector will actually receive additional um you know, additional money if they can meet these performance benchmarks. And the idea is, you know, does it matter? And, and that's what this book asks. Does it really matter if a, if a private company or the government is managing or running these prisons? What should matter to us is the outcomes. And it's very important that we restructure contracts around the nation's public policy goals, which would ensure that these private operators provide more educational programming, job training, and that they prepare individuals for a successful reentry to the community. So I'm excited to study those models and see if they can be replicated in the United States. You've been listening to Lauren Brooke Eisen, whose new book is Inside Private Prisons, An American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Lauren Brooke, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.